here. Hello and welcome to episode 145 of Blockchain Insider. My name is Simon Taylor and I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Kai Sheffield, head of crypto at Visa. How are you doing, Kai? I'm doing fantastic. Excited to jump in. And I'm really excited too. Like, there's just so much happening. Today is a new show, so we're going to be looking at some of the biggest stories from the last month. And we struggled to get it down to three, but here's the main ones we're going to start looking at. The Loot Project flips the script on NFTs. El Salvador endures a bumpy first week with Bitcoin as legal tender. And the SEC wants to regulate Coinbase's crypto yield product and also is investigating Uniswap. So there's a whole bunch of regulation stuff to dig into. But we are joined by some fantastic guests. Making a return is the one and only Guerra Kawana, who is Senior Ops Analyst here at 11FS. Welcome back, Guerra. How are you doing? Doing okay, yeah. So much to get into with you, Guerra. Excited to have you back. And alongside Guerra, we have making a debut, the one and only Ryan Todd, who is now Research Lead of Digital Assets at Fintech Collective. How are you doing, Ryan? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being on the show. Excited to have you uh, involved. All right. So NFTs are flying with the possible exception of, um, as we record this, because of something to do with Evergrande in China. But um, unlike the skeptics thought, they just keep on going. But the Loot Project uh, is one that has been covered by TechCrunch and it made many other news outlets as well. So here's the, the sort of the top level summary. So last month, an artist called Dom Hoffman tweeted about the launch of Loot, one of his new projects, looking at games and game creation through the lens of NFTs. The project lets you send some money uh, to create a unique list of items. There is no artwork, no stats, or even game rules that would inform those stats. So essentially, I think there was, what, 8,000 of these items created and each of them is a list of about seven to eight individual items. That's all it was. The minimum price or the floor to buy one of these bags shot to thousands of dollars worth of ETH. Um, and certain kinds of items were found to be rare on analysis of the entire set. So bags containing those rose in value to extreme heights. By August 31st, there was a legible community of people investing in these bags containing certain types of items, but also creating tools for visualizing those items, monitoring price fluctuations and working on their own projects. There's still no real rules for those items including what it would even mean to have a character equipping them. Um, and there was a great tweet by Redefined Life that said, "What it, somebody asked, what is loot? Uh, and the answer was, loot is NFT improv. Now, if all of that sounds absolutely crazy, Ryan, let's come to you first. Can you explain this in some more simple terms of why loot is different to some of the other NFTs that have kind of been out there? Sure, definitely. So I think you summarized it up pretty well. I think the one thing I always like to hit on and why I think, I guess there's two ways to take this, but the reason why in the crypto community specifically, why there's a lot of excitement around it is it kind of had this element of what people like to call a fair lunch or um, this like immaculate conception where um, really anyone could have minted this NFT. You didn't really buy it. You just had to pay for the transaction fee on the Ethereum network to, to mint the NFT. And, um, you know, that's kind of similar to how, you know, Bitcoin was kind of produced into the world. You know, if, if you had some hardware to mine this thing called Bitcoin, anyone could have set those up early on. It was, wasn't really competitive and you could have minted Bitcoin. And likewise, there's parallels also to 
how some of the the latest DeFi valueless governance tokens launched last summer. Um, same concept. So I think within the crypto community, there's some excitement there. But borrowing, because there's a lot of the excitement's palpable. It, it crossed not only crypto, definitely crossed the chasm into traditional tech. And like you mentioned, um, it was I was shocked at how many outlets covered it within a weekend's time. I think that shows like how widespread it, it really went. But this idea, and really curious to hear what others think about this, but this idea that it kind of flipped like who was creating the value and, and who was really initiating um, the creation of this and in, in the sense that other NFTs we see typically are made by some sort of team, some, most of the time anonymous in, in many cases these days. Uh, they'll launch the NFT. Sometimes you have to pay for the launch. Um, obviously, this is generalizing. There's, there's tons of different ways to launch NFTs, but users will then buy these NFTs. And then it's up to the creator of the NFTs to dictate like um, what type of scarcity they have or where uh, future value may come, whether they're trying to create the, the well often cited metaverse where these, these game <laughs> items may, or these NFTs may one day be um, used in this like metaverse that the company that created the NFT will create one day. Loot's completely different in that it effectively just dropped a, a black page with, with white text of, of eight different items. And from there, it was really up to the community to, to decide where they want to take it. And so that's kind of where it like flipped the script on its head. In my view, it really was a, a big bang moment for, for NFTs and, and crypto more broadly. And I think what's exciting about that is that you saw a change in the model that's super exciting. Kai, what, what are your thoughts um, that, that you're know, kind of following what uh, Ryan had to say there? So I think that creating games with your friends is pretty fun. And that's what this is. It's, it's an attempt of a group of people, a community coming together and creating a game. And I compare this a bit to, you know, I used to play Monopoly, you know, with my siblings growing up. And then one day my parents got us a board that was make your own Monopoly. And so, you know, we got to decide like based upon places in our neighborhood, like what each piece, you know, should be. And it was really fun to make your own game. Now the question was, we made the game and had fun making it. Then we played it like once. And then we went back to playing regular Monopoly. And so I think the question is, you know, is the process and the ability to create a game with community, does it lead to a game that everyone wants to continue playing? Or is it just the excitement with the process? And will that become something that's sustainable? But I think it's exciting to just see it's a new category of text-based NFTs. And like there's demand for text if it's designed in a creative way. And We've seen this with mirror blog posts. We've seen this with poetry. And so it really just expands NFTs becoming a tool that can create these composable items that could be anything from images to text. And it's fun to play around and figure out how they can fit together. I think before I bring Guerra on this, I just want to point out that there was a chap called Kyle Russell who gave an example just to finish off the definition, contrasting the Marvel Cinematic Universe versus loot. So the loot approach would generate some hero names and a set of powers. That's it. So you wouldn't know anything about these heroes, what they look like, how they interact with each other, what the story is, any of the rules. That would be put together by the community. Artists could imagine the heroes, illustrate them, uh, and do whatever they want. 
Now, that's great, but it's it doesn't make any sense in isolation. The flip side of this is thinking about this world of the metaverse. Like, I don't know if anybody's played Smash Brothers or any of the video games where a character comes from one universe into another. So Sonic the Hedgehog goes into the Nintendo world. The artists and game designers have to do so much work to make sure that that isn't game-breaking. So that it's sort of like this peer-to-peer relationship. With something like Loot, I have these open source pieces that any developer can choose how to use. And I think that is interesting as, as a contrast. But Guerra, I want to come to you reflecting on what Kai said there about you know, creators and artists. Do you think the Loot model um, kind of opens the spectrum? And if so, how? I'm pretty excited about this. I mean, as someone who's, I'm not a big gamer, but I have done some gaming in my life. It does open up, you know, quite some interesting doors because gaming is, you know, has has always been, and as someone who's grown up with video games, it's just been a community type of activity, right? There's like communities of form on Reddit, Discord, even on Facebook, <laughs> you know, like people like to get together who play a lot of like games. And then there's also like a larger, like larger, like more sub communities of like super niche gaming communities from of these indie games. So I think that, the you know, coming uh, crypto and NFTs even the, that are, already like pretty community centric moving into the gaming space which is which is also also like super community centric could pose some interesting opportunities for game designers for uh, video game enthusiasts you know collecting various artifacts and loot bags and um you know just i think the last thing i'll say is that it's also lucrative uh, because last thing i'll say is that um uh, we've heard so many stories and i i know so many stories of people who have children who are preteens or teens who have spent thousands of dollars of their parents' money on loot bags and and on Roblox uh, credits and all that stuff in app purchases. So there's definitely a need for this. I don't know if it's going to be like I don't know if the mainstream adoption type thing is going to be something that loot is something that that will um, happen. But I, I see, I'm pretty excited about the opportunities around this. I'd say that's kind of like the zeitgeist of it, to be honest. Like merging Kai and, and Guara's comments. It, it, games really are about the community. And I think crucially what Loot changed with this with this uh, launch and drop and why I think many in traditional tech are so excited about it um, is there are these early parallels to the internet where really it's up to the community to do the heavy lifting on what this might become and, what it, and where to take it from there. And it's not really top-down driven by some company or, or organization. Or a small group of people, even. Um, yeah. and, and that is, the change of governance is exciting. So I've still got the boomer on my shoulder, sort of going, <laughs> this all sounds crazy to me. Um, but we've got to remember Chris Dixon's comment, uh, sort of, it always starts out looking like a toy, doesn't it? Um, that next big thing. I'm going to move us to the next story. We could unpack loot in an entire show by itself. This, this, this whole space is just so incredibly interesting. But the next story comes from the Financial Times. So apparently El Salvador has endured a bumpy first week with Bitcoin as legal tender. Under a plan rushed through the Congress by President uh, Nayib Bukele, El Salvador became the first country in the world to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. As it came into being this week, citizens were given $30 worth of Bitcoin for free by the state, but long queues formed at cash machines on the edge of the capital, with most people trying to convert their Bitcoin back to US dollars. The cash dispensers stopped working, uh, and just three people had been able to withdraw money from the machine all day. Businesses, from shops to restaurants to hairdressers, must now accept Bitcoin alongside the dollar, which has been El Salvador's official currency since 2001. And the president believes it 
it is a way to attract investment, bring down the cost of remittances, and also the government spent more than 200 million US dollars creating an app and setting up a network of cash machines and funding the bill for these commissions. Guerra, as somebody who is very close to remittance challenges and some of the challenges in the, in the global south, how do you reflect as you look at this one? As someone who is, I think, uh, Simon, you referred to me as crypto curious. <laughs> Um, I like I, I love crypto. I'm very excited by the the promise of the of the blockchain and crypto. But this really actually infuriates me because you know 200 million dollars was spent creating the app and setting up the network. That to, like this is a this is a country with you know the same a lower GDP than that of like uh, like Uganda for example, which is where I'm from and it's a, it's considered a low income country, low income nation. So that 200 million dollars could have gone to other things. And the fact that like this this rollout has been, you know, crypto as a mandate rather than like if we go back to the previous story talking about like community community led and community driven, people were just it was just dumped on on the citizens. And I understand there's a lot of people who are excited about this and, and the promise of it, but it just feels like a botched rollout that could have been a lot more thoughtful. And just, yeah, so it really does upset me. Like, I am quite upset (laughs) by this news. But I think it comes down to, like, fundamentally, what problems is this solving for consumers from from a mandate perspective? We know the technology. We know even Bitcoin with Lightning Network could um, make a real difference for people's lives. But that community-led thing is kind of key. I mean, Kai, talk to me about some of the challenges you've seen as you've looked at remittances and cross-border payments and that sort of thing. Is there something here we could work with? So, so I think one of the interesting things to observe is this is a really good example and, and fascinating experiment about how crypto infrastructure is complex and it takes time to be able to build out. And even just you know, blockchain networks, you know, Bitcoin and the, the Lightning Network as, as well as you know, others, clearly have the potential to improve remittances and, and enable new payment flows. But in order to really access and use them, you need to have the right infrastructure. You need to have wallets, you need to have fiat on-ramps and off-ramps, you need to have custodians, you need to have exchanges. So there are all of these pieces. And I think we're seeing how it's a, it's a challenge. It's not that it, it can't be done. It, it takes time and resources and, and effort. And, and when I look at this, I think there are a lot of lessons for CBDC. You know, even though it's a it's it's Bitcoin, which is a very different asset than a central bank digital currency, I think the concept of a government either mandate or initiative to drive the adoption of a you know new type of currency or asset in a market, it there's just a lot that has to be done. And you know, I think it's it's still really early, and so I, I don't have any judgment on kind of the the rollout. But it's there's a lot of work, and there needs to be a public private sector partnership. You need to have many companies building infrastructure. You need to have a lot of education for consumers about you know how it works, and and it seems very difficult to do just top down with you know, government, you know, driving it or, or with, you know, one company or, or a handful of companies, you need an entire ecosystem. And so how do you build that whole ecosystem to get the infrastructure you need to achieve the benefits that, that this technology can if it's deployed and, and adopted? Yeah, I think super salient points. I think if you contrast 
what India has been able to achieve with the Aadhaar program and the level of buy-in and the level of effort that it had to do. And yes, the scale of its investment and challenges, um, but there was an element of open source. There was an element of public-private sector partnership. And really, there's a lot of lessons we can we can take from, from that and many other examples. Ryan, uh, crypto Twitter, especially Bitcoin Twitter, seemed really excited by this. But as I speak to folks in banking circles, they've more sort of come from Guerra's perspective that this is this is probably not a good thing for the perception of crypto. Where, where do you stand on that? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm kind of a, and I, I don't know, given Visa and Kai, like I'm, I'm kind of a stablecoin and CBDC, like Homer in a sense, like I could see like where like these things would be better payment vehicles than Bitcoin. And I think it comes back down to the price volatility. Like whenever I think about having to use Bitcoin to buy everyday items. I just think it's really taxing for the merchants, let alone take the tax equation out of the um, equation, because I guess now it's legal tender. It's not really taxed the same way, but having to quickly change FX every like second, depending on where Bitcoin is, um, just is really makes it hard to be used for a payment. So I actually was more interested to see if like, if we could get like a USDC coin into El Salvador and see uh, like how that would work and what that would look like in terms of um, the like the reaction to the news and, and from the Bitcoin community, like I think to Guara's point, it feels it did feel rush. I think this whole plan was announced at Bitcoin Miami like three months ago and it's already live. It just seemed like to also to Kai's point, like the infrastructure, like there's just a lot of challenges to, to pull this off let alone just like the asset itself is, is highly volatile. So it's use of like for payments is, is tough, in my opinion. It, it feels like there's almost there, there's two separate things at play here. There's a government endorsement of Bitcoin as an asset and interest in potentially that government holding Bitcoin in their reserves or setting up mining infrastructure for Bitcoin and, and really supporting it as an asset like you know digital gold. And then there is, you know, a government's interest in Bitcoin as new payment infrastructure for better remittances and better retail payments. And I think that, you know, there are people in the Bitcoin community that are excited about both. There are people who may look at one and say, you know, the digital gold use case makes sense. And, you know, using renewable energy in the country for mining makes sense. But enforcing, you know, mandatory acceptance of payments may not make sense. And so I think that's where... It's it's kind of hard to to unpack those two, but I think we'll. This is showing that there's clear interest from some governments, and they see opportunities in how to be forward thinking and experiment with ways to bring crypto into their countries. And I think this will be a good a good case to observe, and and I think other governments will will react and, and respond based on it. And Kai, I just want to come back to you on something that Ryan said there. In, in episode 140 on stablecoins and CBDCs explained, we talked a little bit about stablecoins um, like USDC and Paxos Standard and others becoming another rail. What do you mean when you say like another rail? So in this case, from what I what I can tell, from what I understand, it's looking at Bitcoin and specifically the Lightning Network as a better payment rail and payment infrastructure potentially for the country, both for remittances and retail payments. And so that seems to be the intention. I think the question and the challenge is you still need on-ramps and off-ramps, you still need acceptance. And like a payment rail where value flows is not everything in itself. You have to have everything surrounding it for it to really be integrated and for it to work well. 
And I think it speaks to the lines of people trying to get the thing that they, they did know and understand, um, which is which is super powerful. Um, Guerra, any last comments on this one before we uh, close it close it out? Yeah, just final comments, really. It's just that this was, you know, we kind of we kind of all agree this was rushed and a bit of hype around it, a little bit of crypto bro enthusiasm around it and this this specific uh, uh, leader. But um I think that I, I am I'm still hopeful uh, for crypto, maybe not maybe not Bitcoin specifically, but like these these rails to be adopted by uh, by governments in global South countries. Like I, I truly do believe that the next country to like announce um, some kind of crypto or stablecoin as a legal tender will be in the global South. I just, we just don't know who it is yet. I my money's on Rwanda, maybe uh, who are trying to be the Singapore of Africa. But yeah, I, I think I'm still quite hopeful for this this method. It just needs to be more thoughtfully rolled out. I love that comment. The Singapore of Africa. Singapore, of course, famously has used its ability to be effective and to coordinate policy to become an innovation center for the region. Uh, and actually, if you look at some of what's happening in the open source, if you were to effectively embrace it and thoughtfully embrace it and be thoughtful about the risk for your citizens, um, there's a lot of upside there without question. We're just going to take a quick pause here whilst we hear from our sponsors and we'll be back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility, and Visa is helping everyone take part. Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like FinTech FastTrack, a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. Introducing the Truly Digital Manifesto. If you're not truly digital already, well, you're missing out on a massive opportunity. Faster processes, more customer value, and higher revenues. It's not the future. It's already happening. So how do you measure up? Head over to trulydigital.elevenfs.com to see what it really means to be truly digital. Welcome back. For the second half of the show, we're starting off with the SEC wants to regulate Coinbase's crypto yield product and is also investigating decentralized crypto exchange developer Uniswap Labs. And so the SEC is launching an investigation into Coinbase, threatening to take legal action if Coinbase launched its yield generating product, Coinbase Lend. You know, if launched, Coinbase Lend would be a lending pool focused on USD coin, USDC a stable coin pegged to the dollar. And so CEO Brian Armstrong said on Twitter that the SEC has declared the potential lending feature to be a security, meaning it would have to be registered with them. You know, Armstrong said they refuse to tell us why they think it's a security and instead subpoena a bunch of records from us. We comply, demand testimony from our employees, we comply, and then tell us they will be suing us if we proceed to launch with zero explanation as to why. And so Coinbase still decided to move forward and pre-announce the new feature and set up a, a waiting list, leading to an, the SEC opening an investigation. And so the SEC is also reported to be investigating Uniswap Labs. Uh, the Wall Street Journal says enforcement attorneys are seeking information about how investors use Uniswap and how it is marketed. The SEC has declined to comment on ongoing investigations. So a lot of activity and news here. Let, let's start with you, Ryan. You know, how do you interpret both you know, 
what the SEC, the, the position they're taking, as well as how Coinbase uh, has has responded to it. Sure. So, I mean, yeah, you hit it on the head. There's been, uh, I would say, an uptick given uh, the SEC chairman, Gensler, new appointment. He's had some few months to, to get his feet under himself and, and start pushing forward what he wants to do. Uh, in terms of crypto, it's a hot button topic. And I think getting back to like is crypto mainstream, it, it clearly is is like top of mind for a lot of people. And so in terms of like enforcement on, say, a centralized exchange versus a decentralized exchange, both examples of the news this week that you gave kind of cover both. I've always thought that it's easier to enforce the exchanges. And so uh, it's unfortunate because I was going to be a, a huge user of the, of the Coinbase Lend product. I'm comfortable with whatever risk there may be, um, and I'm happy, you know, getting four percent on my USD coin. But you know, there is an argument to be made that, like, you know, if these are securities, like this, like they need to follow securities rules and like and and regulations, and it kind of reminds me of like Robinhood when they announced their three percent high interest yield account on on their money account, and then within like a week that just like never happened, they kind of backtracked it. I think. In Coinbase's case, it was interesting to see Armstrong come out with with the thread that he had, calling the SEC sketchy. It was it was it was a bold move, but it seems like it was calculating. In terms of like where they go from here, I, I think that people like to draw parallels to move fast break things, and that's fine and dandy for the Airbnbs and Ubers of the world, and it worked out for those businesses. In their case, I think financial regulation just is a little bit stricter and, and different, so they may move forward with it. I would assume they don't move forward with it until they get the regulatory clarity that they're asking for that the SEC hasn't provided. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to follow. Um, and then in terms of like the DEXs and Uniswap, I don't really have a view on that and where that's going. I just think it's it's quite clear that the SEC is really trying to to get in the room with with all these different labs and people that are helping to you know develop and build out some of these protocols. In, in Guerra, I'm, I'm curious, you know, how do you think about what implications does this have for DeFi versus CeFi? It seems like in this example, there's a CeFi centralized exchange in Coinbase uh, that the SEC is, is looking at. And then there's also a, a developer of a decentralized exchange with Uniswap on a, a separate topic. You know, how do you see this, this playing out over time? Of, will this drive more interest in, in DeFi versus CeFi? Like, how, how do you see that shaping? I think it's uh, personally. I, I feel it's a little too soon to to really comment on the DeFi versus CeFi uh, and the uptake of like the adoption um, numbers really in, in America um, and elsewhere. But um, I, I see this as being the kind of like the 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 shot heard around the world. Um, you know, the beginning of some real discussion around crypto and, and blockchain really regulation. You know, I think that uh, like Ryan said the. the the work that the SEC is doing with all these labs around basically shaping regulation is going to maybe hopefully bring more people, to, like again, make make it more mainstream, bring more people to into like using these products. But again, really focusing on consumer protection. But you know, the SEC <laughs> have been kind of like I don't know haphazard about this. Like they're kind of making stuff up as they go along. Like why? Well, because we said so. Uh, it's kind of what 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 the vibe I'm getting from this. But I, I think that you know this is the time we're hearing Brian Armstrong make these really bold bold claims and comments online publicly. This is the time that I think that it's it, regulators are going to start to be 
you know, hauled into into this century. And we might start seeing regulators who were not born during the time when cigarette smoke was advertised to children. So like having people who are a little bit more plugged in to the to the, the times and like, you know, the benefits and rather than like blanket, uh, you know, statements like, you know, that this is security all of a sudden uh, without giving too much uh, explanation. So yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful for the regulation. I'm hopeful for this to actually drive more adoption and trust as well. Guerra, just to follow that point on regulation, uh, the old saying is be careful what you wish for. And the industry has been saying we need regulatory clarity, but clarity might not always be the most thoughtful um, in how, how it comes along. And so I think there's, there's probably two, maybe three things going on here. The first thing is DeFi lending does look like a security. The issuer isn't obvious, but in effect, it functions a little bit like a bond as you stand back and look at it. Someone else is borrowing against a market and you're buying that borrowing via an intermediary. The SEC's definition of a bond is a security. DeFi lending and the yield products look like somebody's really saving against or investing in bonds and the bond market. That is that is a security. And I think the industry has to face that. The question then becomes, how do we regulate that? And it's really a case of consumer protection and market integrity. And those are two different points. And the uh, the kind of the way that Brian Armstrong's gone to, to market with, with some of his things about, oh, you've gone after us, but other people are in market. I'm not surprised. You know, Coinbase is the poster child for being the on-ramp. You know, if you are going to have one place you send people that is idiot-proof, that's Coinbase, and that's a testament to those guys. But that also means, A, they're public, and B, they're more heavily regulated. So they're going to be held to the highest level of security, uh, the scrutiny by, by the regulators. The flip side of that, though, is we're also in a market where there is just nowhere generating any yield. And a lot of that comes down to rules created by the Treasury and the Fed and, of course, the SEC. We don't let consumers invest in high-risk products, but also we have long-term low interest rates and we're printing money. So how is the consumer supposed to benefit from growth unless they have access to something along these lines? So I'm hopeful we'll find something thoughtful and a thoughtful path through this. Um, but I'm really hopeful that the industry will take upon itself to think about how do we ensure that we are proactively managing those consumer protections, explaining the financial promotions, explaining the risks, which a lot of them do, but they don't do it in a standard way. And if they did speak with one voice, I think that would be really effective. I will get off my pulpit. <laughs> Ryan, maybe, maybe any, any last thoughts here before we wrap this story up? Yeah, I think just one last thing to, to call out about why they're the centralized lending versus DeFi and what I think is so interesting really does come down to the risks of the system. They're, they're definitely different. On the centralized side, it's a bit of a black box, like these centralized uh, crypto deposit takers take the USDC and they're going to be passing them on to market makers and institutional investors that want to use them to trade and speculate and, and use it for leverage. The consumer doesn't see any of that, doesn't really have any idea like how capitalized that system is versus relative to just what the company tells us. In Coinbase's case, they're public. Um, so every quarter they'll file their quarterly reports. But um, outside of that, there's not that much transparency into that. You just kind of take them for face value. But what's really interesting about DeFi is you really do see how capitalized the system is. You see who's borrowing and where that those funds are going. And there are still other risks like technical and platform and uh, like smart contract risks and what have you. But it does like 
highlight why these two systems are a bit different from the consumer protection standpoint. Yeah, it, it definitely seems like there's there's a healthy need for a conversation about risks of these products and compared with how these these products actually operate. Uh, so going to our, our last you know, story for, for the episode. So it's been a big month for you know, FTX. You know, they've announced their the upcoming launch or the relaunch of their you know, NFT marketplace that will let creators and collectors trade NFTs cross-chain using Ethereum and Solana. They've also struck their latest endorsement deal, this time with NBA star Steph Curry. And FTX said in a statement, Curry will receive an equity stake in FTX. Uh, and Curry's foundation, Eat, Learn, Play, will partner with FTX on charitable initiatives. And then Tom Brady and, and Giselle uh, also took an equity stake earlier this year, and they're starting in a campaign for the brand, which is a fantastic commercial, one of the, the best that, that I've seen in, in the crypto industry. So maybe let's, let's start with Guerra. Like, what do you think about FTX's you know, sponsorship and marketing you know, strategy? And, and, and how, would you, how would you grade that so far? What impact are, are they having with these, if any? I'd grade them. I think the marketing alone is an A plus. Just by if, if we measure it by you know bringing something that's been kind of obscure to kind of medium mainstream and like blasting it into mainstream, uh, like Tom Brady and, and Steph Curry, like who does not know who those people are, and you know really focusing on on retail investors, like getting the regular Joe, you know, someone to just like enter the you know crypto and and start trading. So I think it's. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> it's like the first real, like, trusting, I, I guess, even like somewhat trustworthy uh, hype I've seen around crypto in a while. But yeah. Hey, I think that the umpire sponsorship deal of like FTX logo on the umpire has to be one of the most interesting strategic, you know, fintech or crypto partnerships of, you know, the umpire has to be fair. <laughs> like every time you're watching a game, you see the umpire. So what about you, Ryan? You, you mentioned this in your opening about crypto going mainstream. How do you think about FTX, you know, as a product and as a company versus other crypto exchanges? You know, what advantages, uh, you know, do they have? How do you see them competing, you know, in this, this pretty competitive market, you know, over the, the next year or two? Sure. So I think the thing that amazes everyone about FTX is just how early they still are in their in their journey. I think you know most people had never even heard of FTX within crypto like a year ago or a year and a half ago. They've only been around, I think, almost three years. And um, now I think I wouldn't say more people, at least in the U.S., know FTX more than Coinbase. But I think these deals certainly help close the gap quite quickly. To Guara's point, like these sports stars have millions of followers. That ad campaign was was excellent, uh, the, the Brady and Giselle one. And I think it does just kind of help legitimize like, oh, if, if Tom Brady's in on crypto, you know, why can't I be? And I think FTX is really doing a good job of going after the consumer, um, which I think is interesting from that perspective. And they are, you know, pretty strong global brand at this point. We haven't really talked about this today, but crypto really is this global phenomenon. It's not like US centric or European centric or even Asian specific. It's It's all over the place. Um, and so I think the one thing that unites um, a global audience is sports and these sports athletes. So I think it's a really smart marketing channel for FTX. What, what stood out to me, Kai, as well, is that this is all sort of like the A-listers they're going after as much as possible. So you have seen, you know, in the UK, we have a number of um, 
Premier League teams that are lower level and and even you know, lower divisions with some crypto company sponsoring them. But those would have been you know sort of uh, some other trading site used previously with with some of the more risky and more speculative products. It was more on that end. Whereas FTX has really gone um, to to get the checkbook out and go go big. But also generally the perception of FTX in crypto Twitter and potentially elsewhere is this not only is as Ryan said is is a team that's executed extremely quickly within three years but their data typically shows that when the market is down and liquidations are high in other words you know the leverage is coming out of the system um, the retail investor is getting crushed for going too far with leverage ftx traders do pretty well which means their audience is skewing very very institutional um, or at least very, very experienced from, from, from what it is. So I know regulators have a number of concerns about the crypto to crypto exchanges and how that works internationally. But to, to Ryan's point, um, there's a thoughtful dialogue coming from, from FTX and others, and their positioning is, is incredible. Their pace of execution is incredible. Um, and I think I mentioned it on the show, on the NFT show, Mario Gabriel did a piece called the Everything Exchange, which is a three-part special all about FTX, kind of going into their founder's background, the product today, and then the, the sort of the marketing strategy. Uh, and I think it's really interesting place. Um, but to the previous story, with where the SEC is going, you know, what, what, where's the rub of the green going to be for this? Are they really going to take not just the hedge funds as institutions? Are they going to become a part of market structure? Are they more the NASDAQ for everything else? Are they more in that space? Or are they, you know, sort of Coinbase and, and, and sort of fitting in that category? I think the world had them in that Coinbase category, but maybe they're more in the NASDAQ category, plus, 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 for a world in which we're trading lots of different kind of assets and, and other things. And it's interesting to think about culture as you know a marketing you know approach with sports and and, and music and, and celebrities, and then how they're actually embedding it into the product, you know, with with the NFT experience. And and this seems to be a trend that you know it it makes sense and it's logical for a crypto exchange that already supports trading of fungible assets to enable the creation and, and trading of, of non-fungible assets. And so, you know, I'm curious, maybe Guerra, like, what do you think it looks like? Is every crypto exchange going to incorporate NFTs inside the experience? And then, you know, particularly in emerging markets, you know, how are people viewing NFTs today? And is that a user acquisition wedge where do you think that people may sign up you know, to interact with an NFT from their favorite, you know, player before they actually sign up to trade crypto. Do you see that as an as an on-ramp into the space? Yeah, you've yeah, kind of that's an interesting point. I haven't really put much thought into it, but I think that NFTs, yeah, NFTs are, should I think definitely be like an on-ramp really for a lot of adoption because they focus mainly on the creator, right? So whoever's created the NFT brings their crowd with them or you know will will be the person behind, you know whoever or the the body behind the nft and and then that may enable a more adoption but yeah i think that definitely like everyone wants to own something <laughs> of some sort and it provides just a really great opportunity for creators who bring their communities as well so every, most uh, exchanges or even crypto bodies that are face, like retail facing will likely be successful if they have some nft component to them because purely just bringing the hordes of people, right? The, the, the communities. 
Yeah. It, it also seems like in a way it's, it's another, it's another approach to solving fiat on ramps, particularly in markets where there are challenges of, of doing that, where if someone can download a wallet and they can, you know, create an NFT and then sell that NFT, now they sell it for ETH or USDC. Now they have a crypto wallet with ETH or USDC that they can do a lot with. That may be an easier path, you know, than taking your bank account and moving funds, you know, through an on-ramp into a crypto wallet. So Simon, curious as position this in the context of on-ramps into crypto, you know, do you think that's going to become a, a, a successful wedge? How people get paid is so crucial. How people earn day to day. It's like the the top of the river, you know, the clouds turn into water that starts to run down. It's how do businesses get paid? How do people get paid? And actually, if you can affect that, then you can probably affect everything. And it's, it's so interesting as you think about payroll, as you think about small businesses, as you think about all of that. You know, there are people that would rather be paid in USDC uh, or Paxos Standard or Tether than just about any other currency, but they actually have an off-ramp problem. So it's like, okay, I've got that now, where do I spend it? You know, there are, I'm hearing stories of people that are crypto millionaires, billionaires that can't buy groceries because they can't off-ramp, but creating the ecosystem, as you put it, of like, what are the conditions I need to be able to do it? Seems like FTX is trying to create those conditions in terms of culture, in terms of people getting paid, in terms of making things that were illiquid, liquid. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's like, that sort of what's the top of the river? What's where's the where does it all begin? And and I think that's a question we're going to come back to time and time again. Yeah, curious, Ryan, your your thoughts as a wrap up on this, and and maybe just NFTs to me have always been this example of how expansive crypto is. Where you know if you're thinking about it from consumer protection, from regulatory perspective, it's very easy to say, okay, there's Bitcoin, there's high yield accounts, there's DeFi. Then there are NFTs, which could be so many different things themselves. And so how do you just see the impact that NFTs will have around what we talked about before of, you know, SEC and other you know, regulators you know, looking at, at crypto? You know, it, it, do they fall under that? Like, how do you position NFTs there? Yeah, so I think just off the bat, I'm of the belief that this asset class, which has so many different flavors within it and subclasses, just the taxonomies alone change every day, definitely requires its own regulatory structure. And I, I think trying to push this into traditional legacy regulatory structures just is, is not going to be fun. But yeah, to your point, and we didn't really talk about this today either, but like a lot of the like scammy pump and dump ICO things could find its way into NFTs if you have influencers really want to force people to buy their asset or their NFT that let's say gives them some stream of revenue or rights or whatever like you can like get it a certain way to where it looks like a security maybe and even has some some flavors of like wanting to pump people into your assets but at its core, I think these are like just clearly like it's it's just art at the current stage. I mm-hmm. think if you look, we haven't talked about DAOs or that whole world and that can of worms. Um, but some DAOs give you rights and different streams of cash flows and stuff that could get into the security spot. But at its core, I think just like NFTs are art and just assets that you can buy and speculate on and and have fun and trade with your friends, like we talked about with loot. But I would say just in general, it definitely just forces the issue that we need new clear regulatory structures 
because this is a, there's always going to be something new. That's another thing that this tech enables completely things that we, we haven't even thought about today that will seem obvious in 10 years. And it's just accelerating even faster. So. Alrighty, um, just wrapping us here then, um, there's a couple of stories we didn't have time to cover, um, but still deserve a shout out. So the first one is the British Post Office's Identity app will sell Bitcoin vouchers from next week. So it would allow anybody to buy cryptocurrency through its identity verification app. They signed a partnership with Swarm Markets, who are really interesting if you haven't looked them up, regulated by BaFin. Um, the deal enables verified users of the app to click through the Swarm website where they can purchase vouchers that can be redeemed for cryptocurrencies. The post office is only doing the ID app. It doesn't receive a commission for the vouchers or endorse sales of crypto. This is the weirdest thing. I what why like the post office with Bitcoin ATMs I could see that but I don't get this one the post office identity app who even knew they had one and why and second of all why and thirdly why Swarm Markets very interesting um uh, organization but sorry all right Kai next one <laughs> So Standard Chartered is more bullish on Ether than Bitcoin with a $35,000 price prediction. And so British banking giant Standard Charter released a new report that's very bullish on Ether. The bank expects Bitcoin to increase up to 3x from current levels while it sees Ether going up to 10x, but says that Ether carries more risk. Uh, the bank values Bitcoin in the price range of 50000 to 175000 over a longer term and Ether in a 26000 to $35,000 range. Uh, so Bitcoin is currently trading at 50,000 and Ether around 3,700. Uh, so interesting to see more institutional interest in, in, in Ether. And I think the more products that are built on the Ethereum blockchain, the more uh, traction that NFTs and, and stablecoins and DeFi and DAOs, it seems like it makes sense for, for some banks and, and investors you know, on the institutional side to start following Ether closely. People are uh, snoozing on um, Standard Chartered. Keep an eye on those guys. Uh, they're in Asia Pacific with a Singapore nexus, uh, with a different client base, with different problems across different markets. They're doing some. They're making some really interesting moves. Um, of the incumbents, they're they're one of my ones to watch. So uh, shout out to those guys. Uh, already, um, it's time for tweet of the week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the tweet of the week. Tweet of the week. On our last segment today, we want to give a shout out to Twitter of the Week, which came from Jeremy Allaire, the CEO and founder of Circle. He goes on to have a long thread about the rapid growth of one of the stablecoins, USDC, on Solana, uh, which is an alternative blockchain network that did, as we know, have a little bit of an outage this week, um, which is a whole other story, and why it matters for the future of payments. So uh, in just a week, the amount of USDC on Solana's network jumped from $1 billion to $2 billion in circulation. So, um, Ryan, I'm just going to give you a snapshot, 30 seconds on this. Why do you think that was? Uh, there's more interest and activity on Solana itself. There's definitely what are basically effectively ICOs, and people need to deposit USDC to buy into those. There's NFTs now popping up on Solana. You need USDC for that. And then uh, there's also DeFi now being built on Solana, which is USDC is just a good collateral to use for that. So I think there's just increased in activity and you need dollars. This gets back to the El Salvador. Like, I think it's just easier to use dollars rather than volatile um, assets for financial applications. 
And there was and in time with a survey that um, by Fidelity Digital Assets, they found that more than 50% of global institutional investors had already allocated some assets to some of their wealth into the crypto market. 50%, one and one half of them. So if you're one of the institutional investors and you're a firm that's not, that's making you um, one of the rare ones. Uh, most investors disregarded the highly volatile nature of digital assets, um, but remained bullish as 70% of the 1,100 participants uh, stated they would purchase more in the future. So interesting times indeed. All right, that wraps up this week's new show. Thank you so much to all of our guests. Where can people find out more about you, starting with Ryan? Follow me on Twitter. It's uh, underscore RJ Todd. And um, I... Used to work for the block, have have writings there, but should be publishing stuff going forward. So look out for that, I guess. Awesome. Uh, Guerra, how about you? Yeah, 11fs.com. Uh, um, check out what we're up to over there. And then I'm also on the Bird app uh, at NotGuerra. Check out NotGuerra on the Bird app. Um, and are you, Kai? On Twitter at Kai Sheffield and check out visa.com slash crypto. And you'll find me uh, at SYTaylor on Twitter or at 11fs.com. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, remember to go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. Um, And if you really love it, please leave us a review. It helps us make the show better and it helps others find the show as well. So please, if you enjoyed anything about this show, please go ahead and leave that review. Um, And you can find us on social media. Just search for 11fs or Blockchain Insider. Thank you very much and goodbye for now.